0: We're going to be somewhere besides the book of Matthew this morning, but if you have your Bible, I hope that uh, you'll make use of it this morning. You can get a head start if you want and head to the book of John. Uh, the first chapter of John is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning as we study God's word together. Let me just say again how grateful I am for um, those who have served us by establishing all this nice decoration that wasn't here last week. Um, I think most of that thanks is directed at Getty, so we're so grateful for her helping and serving in that way. Looks really, really amazing, and uh, thankful for all of your kids. They did well. No fights. Um, Dave Muxlow told me that uh, this week that his most memorable kids in front moment was two boys, one of which wanted to be in the front, the other one was in the front, and so the one who wanted to be in the front decided that he should tell the one in the front that he should go to the back and he should be in the front. And Dave didn't give any names. I didn't know if it was Davey and Andy. I didn't know what the story was. But uh, anyway, the kid in the back decided that the best way to handle it, because the kid in the front was not cooperating, was to just take him down. And so a full-on wrestling match broke out in front, all the while the suite leader is trying to get them to sing their song or do their verses or whatever it was that they were doing. So... We have succeeded this morning in uh, not having any fights in the front. And uh, you kids did a great job. And thank you for working with them and um, letting us come alongside you and serve you as parents. You are the resource that God has ordained for them to know him. You are the messengers of the gospel. You are primary. We are secondary. And we're thankful for the privilege of serving you, coming alongside your efforts as you parent your children. And uh, I commend you on that. I commend you to continue to press on even when it's difficult and discouraging to raise them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And dads in particular, I commend you to take that responsibility seriously and to press on as the one who has leadership in your home and the one that God has specifically ordered to be responsible for the instruction of your children. So carry on and do so with God's grace uh, evident in your lives. Well, there are so many places we could go this morning in in a Christmas message. Uh, last year, we went to Luke chapter two and and uh, looked at the account of the angels coming and declaring that the Lord had been born. And I again faced the same dilemma that I faced last year in looking at my Bible and knowing that there are a myriad of texts that would serve you well and that I would benefit from as well as I study and prepare and then teach. And I've landed this morning in John chapter one, and we're going to come to this text, which I believe probably is a little bit less of a familiar Christmas passage. I want to come to it for a very specific set of reasons, which I hope will become clear here in just a few minutes. Um, Before we jump into John chapter one, let me just go ahead and whip out my Christmas soapbox. If you'll uh, humor me and I guess you don't have a choice other than to walk out at this point. So humor me. But I am so concerned about Christmas from a Christian worldview. And I have been for a long time. Uh, I grew up in a home with a dad who was every year reconcerned about Christmas from a Christian worldview. Part of what we're doing this morning is because of that burden on my own heart and because of the desire in my own life to have things in order when it comes to the celebration of Christmas time. Part of that. Uh, order is having some details in line. And I just thought I'd give you a few common misconceptions about Christmas that will help you as you uh, work through the details of the story of Christmas. Um, I hope this doesn't shatter your confidence in what you've done for decorations or anything like that. That's not my intent. Um, But here's just some earth shaking news. The wise men weren't at the manger. I can tell by the silence that you uh, you either already knew that and you're wondering why I thought that was news or you haven't thought about that. They weren't there. They actually came and met Jesus as a toddler. Um, Another reality that maybe is missing occasionally is our concept of the manger. I mean, I've seen some mangers that are pretty posh and they're pretty nice mangers Reality is, in the time period in which Jesus was born, a manger at best was like a lean-to. It was some kind of structure, basically, so that animals could eat without precipitation falling on their food and on them. And at worst, it was probably, most likely, it was a cave. It was a rock structure just either cut out of or naturally cut into a side of a cliff. And the animals could go in there, a farmer who utilized that land would throw his trough in there and allow the animals to come in and eat. So when we think of a manger, first of all, um, there weren't any wise men there. Secondly, it's not a nice place. Thirdly, the cattle are lowing, but little Jesus, he doesn't cry, baloney. All right? Jesus was a little baby. He cried. He screamed for his mom to care for him there in that terrible situation in which he was born. And so Jesus was a very real baby. No star over the manger. I don't know if you thought about it, but the star rose after Jesus had come to a place where he, dwell. he dwelt in Bethlehem. And so the wise men were following this light, whatever it was. We don't have a clear word for what it is. That's why we use the translation star. Whatever light was above the dwelling place also disappeared. They travel from so far away, they get there and they can't find him. You remember that in Matthew chapter 2. So they have to ask people. And when they finally find the house, then they see the light back over the house and they're excited about what they've found. And then lastly, I put in my notes here that angels are scary creatures to encounter as humans. Um, I've seen these great pictures of a myriad of angels, the heavenly hosts. And uh, we kind of use that term real like real glowingly, the heavenly host. The host is the military term. Um, These are scary creatures for us to encounter. Those who encountered angels were not generally happy about it in the initial stages of realizing they were in the presence of an angel. And the shepherds were no different. The shepherds are terrified. The first words the angels declared to them are, Fear not. It's okay. Don't be scared because these individuals were out of their mind with fear. So I love going back through the scriptures and looking at details of specific accounts, especially ones that have been almost... um, almost so familiarized with us through whatever venue that we lose the grasp of what's there. And I hope that this Christmas you work through those details. Think through the order of events. Think about what was going on, all that God was doing in the preservation of his son and of our Savior and even the presentation of him as the Savior through the miraculous work that he did in the manger, at the cave or whatever the site was. Because there was no room in the inn and then all the way into his early childhood. Now, those are specific and really just factual details of the story. But there is a much deeper and much more important aspect of detail that we must consider. And that is the theological implications of Christmas. I mean, there are details in the Christmas account that we may or may not grasp. We may or may not have right. And if you have a manger scene with the wise men there, you don't have to go chuck it in the garbage when you get home. OK, that's all right. Just those details are helpful for us because we want to be accurate with what Scripture says. Theological detail of what is going on at Christmas is eternally significant. Because we can't get the the theology of Christmas wrong and still have the right Christ, the right Jesus. And if we don't have the right Jesus, then we don't have a Savior. And if we don't have a Savior, then we stand condemned before the Holy Father who created us. And if we stand condemned before the Holy Father... There's no potential for us to earn enough righteousness to pay the sin debt that we owe. And so, theology at Christmas time is critical for us to rightly celebrate what is going to take place this Thursday. Doctrine has fallen on hard times, and especially in this time of Christmas, I think it is important for us to come back to Scripture to allow it to inform our thoughts so that we can be renewed in our thinking about Christmas. Why do we want to be renewed in our minds? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, so that we're not conformed to the world. That's a great word, conformed. It's kind of like putty. It's molded, it's shaped. And without the renewing of our minds, that is without the word of God daily and continually renewing us, giving new thoughts, bringing new perspective we will be molded and shaped and look just like the lost world system around us. And at no time is this more uh, pointed for us and more obvious for us than at Christmas time. There probably are very few times during the year where we struggle to have renewed minds, which result in transformed life, not in conformity to the world, than at Christmas time. We need Christmas reformation even as God's people. And that's my desire this morning from John chapter one. Consumerism is the worship of our culture. And Christmas is like the microcosm of the lifestyle. If you want to celebrate the worldview of the culture around you, it is consumerism. And this is the greatest expression of it. There's some guy who lives somewhere who has supernatural powers, and his whole goal in life is to bring you stuff. That's your message of Christmas. And because we have this traditional view of Christmas, we then must go out and buy stuff and put it under the tree. And some are even signed by this mythical person who's somewhere else at the North Pole with supernatural powers. I was reminded this week by a brother in Christ that Santa is a cheap substitute for Christ. He's a cheap distraction from Christmas. And I am concerned for my own heart and my own family's tradition. I'm concerned for your hearts and your family's activities through this time. That we be distinctly Christian at Christmas. In one sense, this is our holiday. We don't need to look to the culture around us to know how to celebrate it. I told David this week as we were talking about this text and this topic and this concern. That I wanted to use one of the words he uses all the time. We need to celebrate Christmas Christianly distinctly Christian at this point in our year. Christians who have lost their distinction from the pagan culture and who desire to reclaim a Christ-centered Christmas must begin with the theology of Christmas. Right? What we believe in our hearts informs what we think with our minds. What we think with our minds informs what we say with our lips. And what we do with our hands, where we go, with our feet, the attitudes we display in our relationships. So every single distinction that we want to see made on the external must begin on the internal, must begin at the level of belief, of doctrine, of theology. And it's no different at this time of year in our celebration of Christmas. Let me ask you a question. What sets your Christmas celebration? What sets it apart What defines it as distinctly Christian? What components are a part of our celebration individually and as families and even as a body? What is distinctly Christian about our celebration? That's the question that I have on my heart and I trust that you'll join me in considering this morning as we turn to John chapter 1 and begin reading in verse 1. We're going to study just a few verses this morning and I don't even know. I laughed again as I was writing my final draft of this. I laughed at myself for what I thought we could get through. So we'll see how much we get done this morning, but I hope what we accomplish today will inform us, will renew us, will remind you. If you're here this morning, you're a follower of Christ, you are a Christian. And you are facing Christmas with all the rest of us. I hope this will remind you of truth that will renew your thoughts so that your actions during this time can be distinctly Christian. Beginning in verse one of John chapter one, if you have your Bible, read along with me as I read aloud. This is the word of the living God to us. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Don't have to read out loud. I'll read it for us. You can just read along silently. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In verse 18. We'll wrap up our reading this morning. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's right hand. Has made him known. This morning I want to examine. A theology of Christmas. A theology of what theologians call the incarnation. That is the coming of Christ to earth. And we're going to do that from verses 14 down through verse 18. But in particular, we're going to begin our study, and I'm not sure how much further we'll get, with verses 14 and 15. John's gospel is written as an evangelistic writing. He's writing specifically to Jewish people. There's a number of Old Testament references in the gospel of John. And understand that he's writing as an evangelist, Declaring truth for the sake of drawing people to a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so as we get to verse eighteen, we or verse fourteen rather, we find ourselves at the at the centerpiece, at the point of God who has been revealed in the second person of the Trinity in verses one and two is now making an appearance in flesh. This is the marvel, this is the mystery of the incarnation and this is the starting place for appropriate for a proper theology of christmas and and i didn't know how to outline this for you but i think this may help jesus in verses 14 and 15 is seen as our emmanuel he is seen as our emmanuel that is god with us he's seen as the god man In verses 16 and 17, Jesus is seen not as our Emmanuel, but following on that theme, he is seen as our Messiah. He's seen as the promised one who comes to accomplish what God had said in order from the beginning. And finally, in verse 18, he is seen as our salvation, the one who makes way for us to know the Father. So Jesus is our Emmanuel. Jesus is our Messiah in verses 16 and 17. And then thirdly, Jesus is our salvation. He is the means by which we know God, our creator. So let's begin and let's see how far we get in examining this truth that Jesus is our Emmanuel. He is our God with us. John comes back to his familiar description of Jesus as the word in verse 14. And this is the first time he's done this since verse one, which you're familiar with because we just read it. In verse one, he describes the word, which is not a written word, but a a person, a living and now will be incarnate word. So you have before you in your lap, if you're holding your Bible, you have the written living word of God. What we will examine now in this text from John's perspective is the incarnate living word. Notice a couple of the details, and we definitely don't have time to exhaust these details, but notice them in verse 1. The word was from the beginning, really, literally is what is being said here. In the beginning, the word was. The word was present tense. The word existed. From the beginning, there has been the word. And the word was in the very presence of God, that is the Father. And then, as if we needed any more clarification, the word was was god so here we have the mystery of the trinity a a natural starting place for a headache for us as finite humans how in the world was jesus the eternally existing second person of the trinity the son how was he in the presence of god and in fact god at the same time and how is the spirit the third part of the triune godhead one person or one essence, three persons, three distinct beings. How does this take place? It's a place at which we cover our mouths. We stop trying to explain this and we confess we are created. And he is and they are God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word is eternal. The word is the presence was in the presence of God and the word was God. Now, flip over quickly before we get too settled here. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 1. I've been reading in Hebrews, and I love the way the author of Hebrews describes this same truth. Hebrews chapter 1 begins long ago, at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Same concept, all right? There was a word from God in previous times. That's what the Hebrew, the author of the Hebrews is saying. And God spoke in a number of different ways in a number of different time periods. And you see that throughout your scriptures. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Now, notice the description of the word that is the son who is the last days speaking from the father. He is the radiance of the glory of God And the exact imprint of his nature. I love that description. The exact imprint. The idea here is like a stamp. And This stamp is a perfect stamp of what it is to represent. Jesus carries the exact imprint. He is bearing the very nature of God. And only God himself can bear the nature of God in an exact imprint. That is Jesus, the God-man. So back to John chapter one and the beginning here of verse 14 and the word that is the eternally existent son became flesh and dwelt among us. This is our Emmanuel, God with us. There was a promise that a suffering servant would come, that God would make his presence permanent with his people. This is a consistent promise throughout our Old Testaments. And here John points us to the proper theology of Christmas that Jesus is that fulfillment. It's a great word here that John chooses to use to describe this dwelling among us. The word becomes flesh. That in and of itself is an overwhelming concept for us. That God in Philippians chapter 2. The second person humbled himself. Set aside his rights to his power and to his majesty. And took on a humble state as a man. He was 100% God. Setting aside his rights to his majesty. And he was 100% man. Living here amongst us in the flesh. For the sake of rescuing sinners from the penalty of their sin. But the word that John uses in verse 14 to describe the Emmanuel concept is dwelt among us is the way it's translated for us. And and that's a powerful picture because the actual idea here is of someone pitching a tent and living amongst another people group. A tribal idea. And this was very real for the the nation of Israel, for the Jewish people. They got this. They understood this because they spent 40 years circling up the tents, eating the manna, walking through the wilderness, an 11-day journey. That took 40 years. And you'll remember. That God in his kindness. In Exodus 33. And in Exodus 34. God in his kindness. Worked with his people. They established in Exodus 25. And 33. Two places where God would come. And would meet with them. They would erect a tent. And he would come. And put his Shekinah glory on display for a very limited number of people so that God's people would receive revelation from God. All right? Here's the tent. It's the tabernacle in Exodus 25, and it is the tent of meeting in Exodus 33. So the Israelites understood this concept of God dwelling in a tent, but the picture here is, is a permanent picture. Jesus comes. God, the Word, the second person of the Trinity, becomes flesh. He is really human. He is really man, and He's really permanently dwelling amongst us, John says. You cannot overstate the miracle of what is being described in John chapter 1 and verse 14. The Apostle John, speaking in the first person, acknowledges that the eternally existing Son is, Described in verses 1 and 2 is now flesh and his dwelling has dwelt among humanity. This is a powerful concept. Jesus is now God with us. He's Emmanuel. No longer will God meet with a view of God's people. No longer will he come for a moment. No longer will he be temporary. No longer will he speak to only a very limited few. The priests and his spokespeople He now is amongst his people in the revelation of Jesus Christ at the incarnation, a little baby in a terrible manger, born to a poor family, conceived by the Holy Spirit to Virgin Mary. This was God with us. And notice the response John goes on to explain for us in verse 14, they experienced those who saw Jesus, experienced Jesus' glory. John here is speaking specifically of those who would have been living at the same time that the Lord lived, in particular the apostles, and we have seen his glory. And then he describes the glory of Christ, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's a mouthful, and that's an important mouthful for us this morning. The glory of God is revealed in the glory of Christ, which is seen by, in this context, the apostles and those who lived at the time of Christ. Notice what John says about the glory of Christ as he sees it in verse 14. There's a comma after glory, and then he describes it as glory as of the only son from the father. And if you have an older translation, you probably have The only begotten son, or if you have maybe another modern version, you have the one and only son. The reason for that is because the word that's used here and the concept that's used here is not one of timing. You see, this is not an aspect of there were multiple sons that were God's sons, and Jesus is the first. He's the only begotten one. He's the only one that was born in human flesh. That's not the concept here. The concept is he's the one and only son. That is, he is primary. He is priority. He is the son of God. And that is the point that is shown in the glory that he bore here on this earth. It was glory that could only come from the one and only son of the father. There will be no other Jesus. There can be no other lesser jesus even in our representation of him than the only son from the father and notice finally the description of that glory it is not only a divine glory but it is a glory that is filled up to the brim with grace and truth powerful words jesus is our emmanuel his glory was on display in his human existence in his life on earth and that glory was full of it was to the brim with grace and with truth. Jesus is the clear and exact representation of the father for us to see. Jesus is the truth and he is grace for the sinner. Now, John puts a little parenthesis here, and it's an important parenthesis for us to see in verse 15. If you have an ESV, if you're looking on with the same, you'll see parentheses actually on verse 15. And that's because some have argued or wondered if this verse is out of place, like that this is get stuck in the wrong spot. And I think the answer is no. I think the best understanding is that this is a parenthetical thought from John, because back in the early part of this chapter in verse six, he started with truth. And then he confirmed that John testified to it Now. When he gets to the actual account, theologically, Jesus becomes flesh and dwells among men and John testifies to it. And so we see the testimony of John. Jesus is our Emmanuel. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, this is an amazing little verse and an amazing quote from John. Don't miss this. John was well aware that he was not the Messiah. He was also well aware that he was not in rank above Jesus. But he was also aware that he was six months older than his cousin, Jesus. And so he adds all that theology with the facts of life. Six months older. No doubt they grew up knowing each other. Even before John was born, he knew who. The baby was that Mary was carrying. But notice John's words in verse 15. He who comes after me, that is six months after me, ranks before me. Now, why? Why is it that the one who is born later is before? Well, he goes on to say, because he was before me. In other words, he was born after me, but he existed before me. John testifies to the eternality of Jesus The eternality of the Son, the second person of the Trinity, and understood that the Messiah was the eternal God of heaven, the creator of the universe. Therefore, though he was six months older than Jesus, the incarnate Word, he was also after him. Jesus ranked before him because he was, he existed, he was before me, John says. What a powerful testimony from john the baptist now one closing thought before we move to quickly to jesus as our messiah and that is this john says that jesus comes to earth he becomes flesh he dwells among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son of the father and glory that is full of grace and truth now understand something this is a common misconception theologically at christmas time that jesus Is a universal Jesus and that there is a universal response to him. David made a very clear point if you weren't catching it. That Jesus did not bring peace to the world as in every human being. He brought peace to those with whom God was pleased. He Jesus says himself don't think I came to bring peace I came to bring the sword. Jesus brought peace to those who saw his glory. Understand from John chapter 1, not everyone saw the glory of Jesus. If you're a regular part of our family here, we're studying the book of Matthew. And in Matthew, we're at chapter 8. And we're beginning to look at the miraculous works of Christ that defended, that backed up his claim to be the Messiah. Now, in that is an amazing reality that we're going to see over and over and over again. Jesus is going to put on, his, on display his miraculous power. The Spirit is going to use him in an unbelievable way to confirm that he is, in fact, the Messiah. And as he carries out the will of his Father, and as he brings his righteous life to bear on those who are sick and helpless, those who are in need of food, there will be a consistent rejection of him as the Son of God. And that will culminate at the end When the very crowds that screamed Hosanna because they thought their king had arrived will scream out crucify him because they wanted nothing to do with what his kingdom truly was. So not all have seen the glory of Jesus as glory from the only son of the father. Not all have seen the glory of Jesus as glory full of grace and truth. And as we celebrate Christmas This year, we celebrate it if we are, in fact, those who follow Christ, if we are kingdom citizens, if we are in Christ, we celebrate it as those who do see the glory of the son. Don't expect your culture to see the glory. The glory is only seen through eyes of faith, granted the sovereign grace of our loving father. Therefore. Let me warn you. Jesus is our Emmanuel, but unless we have bowed our knee and unless others bow their knee in repentance and faith. He will be their conquering judge. Not their sufficient savior, who is the comfort as God with us to miss this as like the underpinning theology of Christmas is really to open the door for any sentimental Christmas thought to come flooding in. Here's how this works out. Whatever happens on Christmas morning in your house. This this has to affect it. We can't say that we're celebrating the incarnation of Jesus Christ without this truth affecting what happens. So I don't I don't know the answers to how that individually works out in in each of your homes and your families and even individually in our lives as we. We celebrate this with those that we love. But this has to bear on us. It cannot be just an afterthought. It cannot be a fleeting moment. It can't be a sentimental thought. This is theology that is the heartbeat of who we are in Christ. Therefore, Christmas has to be distinctly Christian for us. We can't be satisfied. We cannot be satisfied with a cheap substitute. For Christ. Whether it's a lesser Christ, whether it's a Christ who just wants you to be happy and therefore he lets Santa know what you wanted, I don't know. It can't be a lesser Christ. It can't be the, a Christmas that's devoid of Christ. We cannot be satisfied with trees and stockings, sugar, stuff. It's not who we are, it's not what we're about. This is our Savior. This is a miracle of every miracle. This is our life. These truths are the basis of our faith. And we have an opportunity on Thursday to celebrate them in a special way, even more than we do every day of our lives. Jesus is our Emmanuel. Let's try to blast through quickly. Jesus is our Messiah. Let me just show you the the simple truths that are here and let me point out, I love this is one of my favorite verses in Scripture. And from his fullness, verse 16 says, from the words fullness, that is Jesus, we have all received John speaking collectively of the the body of Christ. Those who are God's people, we have all received grace upon grace. This is this is great. I I, I love this verse. I can't underline this enough from his fullness. We have all received grace upon grace. And then the explanation of that is, hey, listen, Moses came. And when Moses came, Jews, John's writing to Moses came with the law and the law proved you were sinners. It could not earn your salvation. You could not keep it. But when Christ came, he was the fullness of the law. He fulfilled the law. Matthew chapter five, verses 17 through 20. And therefore, he provided grace from God as a substitute One who could give righteousness to those who could not earn it. This is the explanation of verse 17 for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, back to verse 16 and back to one of the most encouraging phrases that we find in our Bibles and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace Now, there are times in our Bibles in English where we struggle to understand or to really get a grasp of what's going on there in the language in which the Bible is written. And this is one of those spots. There are not many, but this is one of them, because the idea here is that grace builds on grace and it is an indefinite idea. It is a permanent state of being. Let me get that for you. The promised one comes. So that we as the beneficiaries of salvation from the father through the righteousness and the death and the resurrection of the son might receive grace. Upon grace. Upon grace. Upon grace. Upon grace. Upon grace. Upon grace. grace. There is no end to the fullness of Christ as the delivering of grace. We receive grace. Grace. For eternity. It will never end. The promised one is here. Grace and truth has arrived in bodily form. We'll live a perfect life. We'll die a perfect death. We'll be raised to new life. And will provide salvation. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. You say, I'm just so worn out. Wake up in the morning. And I think, can I go through another day? There's grace upon grace available in Christ. I'm halfway through my day and my world collapses around me. I get tragic news delivered to me. Can I go on? There's grace upon grace. I'm battling with sin. I've failed. Can I go on? I've fallen into sin. Here I am, a follower of Christ, who's placed my hope and my confidence in Christ, and I've sinned. There's grace upon grace. There's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace you could put two more dots out at the end of verse 16. Dot, dot, dot. It's unending. This is our theology. And this is what we celebrate. The baby in the manger. Hopefully not with the wise men there. Okay, The baby in the manger is not just a cute picture. It's not just a sentimental American holiday. Hopefully above the manger there's not Santa in his sleigh. That's the incarnate word. That's the fulfillment of the promise. That's God with us. That is the glory of God on display in human flesh. And that is our Messiah. It's the basis of grace upon grace upon grace. And we're just going to have a greedy day of eating. like That's it. That's it. That's all we're going to do. This has to affect us. This is our theology at Christmas and it must impact our actions, and our attitudes on Thursday. Verse 18 concludes this. Jesus is our Emmanuel. Jesus is our Messiah, the promised one, who fulfills the law and brings grace. And Jesus, in verse 18, is our salvation. He is the one through whom we now have access to the Father. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. That is, Jesus has made the Father known by coming in human flesh. Now, go back to Exodus and let's just look. We'll finish out in Exodus this morning. Looking at this familiar passage that no doubt John has in mind and certainly considers the Jewish readers, the original readers, would have had in mind. Exodus chapter 33 No doubt you remember this portion of Scripture. Moses here is interceding with the Lord on behalf of the people. And he's desperate for a glimpse of who God is. He's desperate for something more than what he has received. In verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. But Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, this is God speaking, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. That is, I will speak my name to you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said in verse 20, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Verse 21, And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. Now, just get the picture here. Moses wants to see the Shekinah glory of God. He wants to see the full revelation of the Father. The Father says, Moses, that's a, that's a, a commendable thought, but you'll die if you do that. But I will let you see my goodness and I will speak my name in your presence. And in fact, I'll tuck you into this rock and speaking with with uh, human terms for the sake of us and Moses. God says he covers him with his hand. The father is not human. He doesn't have hands and eyes. He's a spirit. And Yep. The father describes him as covering Moses with his hand in the cleft of the rock as he passes by. And as he's fleeting away, he'll let Moses look on what is left as he trails away. Moses wants to see the glory of God. He wants to see it in all of its fullness. He wants to know the father in all of his glory. So God allows him this privilege, this shortcutted privilege of seeing The glory of God. Now, jump down to verse 5 of 34. And we pick up the account. Uh, Verse 4 says, So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on the Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two two tablets of stone for the law of God to be written upon. Verse 5, The Lord descended in the cloud, covered in the cloud, and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. That is Yahweh, his covenant name. He declared it. In the presence of Moses and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations and Moses verse eight says quickly bowed his head toward the earth And worshipped. And he said. If now I have found favor in your sight. O Lord. Please let the Lord go in the midst of the. Go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin. And take from us. And take us for your inheritance. God continues on to make a covenant with Moses. Now notice. The natural outcome of this. I think you remember this. You remember when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai after this happens? He's seen the fleeting glory of God. He's seen the back end of God, which is literally what the verse says. God has let him see a little glimpse and he has spoken audibly and proclaimed his name as the covenant keeping God. And he has described himself as a compassionate and a kind and a merciful, just, holy God. Moses comes off the mountain. And the people can't look at Moses because his face is so radiant with the glory of God. You say now what why is all of that so important? Well, because in John chapter 1 and verse 18, John says no one has ever seen God and lived. Okay, that's never happened. No one has seen the full glory of God and lived to talk about it. No one has seen him. The only God Who is at the father's side. He has made him known. What's the theology of Christmas? The baby in the manger is not just a sweet little baby. He's not a good prophet. He's not just a good person. He's not, as I heard uh, last evening on the commercial, one of the most fascinating historical beings ever. No, no. He's the glory of God on display in human flesh so that we could see the Father and we can know the Father. Without Christ, we don't get to know the Father. He's our life, he's our salvation. He is the loving kindness of God in human flesh. When God said, I'll let my glory pass by and I'll declare my name to you. He described himself as compassionate, slow to anger, who will not overlook iniquity, but will punish it. Jesus Christ is that name in human flesh. He bore the punishment for our sins, if you're in Christ. He put on display the patience and kindness and compassion of the father. This is Jesus. This is Christmas. Now how do we have this theology? And do what most of us have done all of our lives with Christmas. That's what's on my heart and mind. Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is Messiah. And Jesus is salvation. Now what impact does that have on my life? thursday christmas cannot be for us about packages trees lights santa elves cookies chimneys the polar express for more modern it can't be i mean it really cannot be It's as it's as incompatible as any other cultural worldview that stands in the face of the truth of the word. Right. So, therefore, how is it that we then apply these truths in our celebration of our culture still celebrates the birth of Jesus? Now, it's getting harder and harder to know that that's what we're celebrating. We've gone from Christmas now to sparkle season. I mean, we have we're we're getting further and further. But our culture still does this. How can we, within our culture, enjoy a theological Christmas? Christmas cannot even be about our family and friends. What's the greatest memory of Christmases? I, I saw an interview this week. It was a little poll where they pulled people and they said, what, was the greatest, what is the greatest uh, part of a Christmas celebration? And I think they were going for more traditional things, like our family does such and such on Christmas Eve and, and whatever whatever traditions and those are great but the answer kept coming back it's just time with family and friends and, and i understand and i am looking forward to time with my family in florida but christmas cannot have as its fondest memory family because we're not there in a cultural sense we're celebrating the birth the incarnation of the eternally existent word the second person of the trinity We're celebrating our salvation. Christmas must be about the Son of God taking human flesh to bring the greatest glory to God in heaven and the purest peace to men on earth. This is the message of Christmas. The message of Christmas should practically affect the activities of Christmas for the Christian. We are children of the Father through the sacrifice of the Son by the power of the Spirit. Therefore, we live for Him even at Christmas, if not more so. At Christmas. Now here's the fun part. I don't have to apply this for you. I don't bear the weight of responsibility. To take this passage. To take your life circumstance. And to tell you. What God demands of you. For your life circumstance. From this passage. Other than. Jesus has to be the middle. He has to be the beginning. The middle. And the end. And the theology of who Jesus is has to be correct. Because eternity is at stake. Now, how this plays out, how we approach the topic of Christmas as Christians will vary as many as there are people in the room. But let us ask the spirit to help inform our conscience and our thoughts so that we might be renewed and in renewed thinking. We might have actions and attitudes at this Christmas season that are Christianly distinctly so i don't want to burden you i don't want to weigh you down nor do i want to guilt trip you that's not the point at all rather i hope that thursday is a day where we have a better a better worship of the true reason that we celebrate and it will only be by god's grace that that's accomplished in our lives grace upon grace that comes through the very one we're remembering at Christmas, in his miraculous birth.